Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm Marilyn Barefoot. So can you think of five salespeople in your head that you personally know? And did you know that at least two of them are likely struggling with their mental health? I learned this fascinating fact from Jeff Risley, my guest today, who's the founder of the Sales Health Alliance. Jeff realized that there's an awful lot of stress and there's an awful lot of burnout that goes with being a salesperson. So he decided to found the Sales Health Alliance so he could bring that conversation about mental health out into the open and end the negative stigma. And also so he could share some best practices and navigate these stressful situations. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Please welcome Jeff Risley. So I am thrilled beyond thrilled today to have the fabulous Mr. Jeff Risley with us on Breaking Brave. And one of the quotes I'm going to hit you with right up front, Jeff, is if you think of five salespeople that you know that are friends of yours, and I certainly have five, I have more than five, two of them are likely struggling with their mental health. So that's the headline that I would like to start with. Jeff is the founder of an organization, a company called the Sales Health Alliance, which is doing brilliant things. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, Marilyn. Happy to be here. It's always nice to kind of connect and discuss all things mental health and sales. We, we, we missed May and Mental Health Awareness Month, but every day is Mental Health Awareness Month, in, in my opinion. So pumped to be here. Yeah, that is so, so true. So I'm a bit of a linear person. In other words, the story of your life. <laughs> There's some really interesting parallels. And this is not about me. This is about you and the amazing work that you're doing with the Sales Health Alliance. But I was struck by how many similarities there are between us. So let's um, let's first start off with the Sales Health Alliance does what? Assuming that our listeners have never heard of it before, give me your 15-second elevator pitch, and then we're going to go to your life. Yeah, yeah, super easy. So Sales Health Alliance was created to help empower sales teams and salespeople to reach peak levels of sales performance through better mental health. So it's pretty much that simple as because when you think about sales, my belief is anxiety in sales is not optional. It's really part of everyday life. And when teams and people start to become anxious, depressed, and burnt out, the performance really starts to suffer. So all my work revolves around how do you equip them with the resilience, EQ, and the mental health training they need to respond to negative situations and stressors in a mentally healthy way so that they can show up and perform their best and be a little happier and enjoy their work on an ongoing basis a little more. So yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely needed in a profession like sales. That's for sure. Sales and anxiety, sales and performance, sales and numbers, it goes hand in hand. But I think it's one of those things, I believe, and you certainly correct me if I'm wrong, it's one of those things that's always kept in the closet. Mm -hmm. I was in sales. When you have your own business, you're kind of always in sales. But people want to perceive you as strong and charismatic and happy and if you're dying inside, that's not the perception of what people kind of think of as a salesperson. Am I right? Yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right. Like there's this idea that you have to show up and wear this sheet of armor every single day. Like you have to be perfect in every single thing that you do. Like this is drive to be perfect every single day, every single night. And I think that's also just part of the 
environment as well that is that is sales like something that i always talk about is how there's really a, a vulnerability paradox that exists within sales where sales leaders really want teams to be open and vulnerable and um and and so that they can help kind of work with them and work through their specific struggles but when you think about it like how likely are you going to be willing to be vulnerable with someone who's judging and evaluating your performance every single day and the answer is no Probably not at all. No, just not going to do that because then you're showing your soft, if you want to call it underbelly, and and, and they're going to be like, oh, well, you feel immediately like you're going to be judged by by showing up authentically. A hundred percent. And that's kind of, I think, what's existed this for, for a very long time within sales. Like I know when I first started opening up and talking about my mental health story and what is mental health in sales... Two and a half years ago, it was like, who's this crazy person talking about mental health and sales? This isn't a topic that ever gets discussed, but it's been really exciting to see how this conversation has really started to evolve over the last two years, especially right now during COVID, and the openness and the willingness for leaders to start embracing this. But going back to that vulnerability paradox, like we have to think about it that if you're a if you're a sales leader, like it's on you because you're in that kind of power position to start opening up, start sharing, be vulnerable, vulnerable yourself to relate to your reps, to show them that you get it. You know what it's like to face these various stressors, what it's like to miss target and position yourself as an ally and someone that they can come to when they face those things that all of us have been through within sales. Um, so it's, it's, it's 100% needed because it, it just eats away at performance when we don't do this. Wow. And talk about Jeff being the wise individual at, in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I do a lot of, um, well, now it's online work, everything mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do a lot of work with an organization in the world called TEC, which stands for the Executive Committee. Um, mostly my work is in Canada, but I work with business leaders of relatively, like mostly they were startups and now they're million, billion dollar companies. And when I ask them, what is the biggest challenge you're facing either now or potentially coming out of, God bless us all if we can, COVID, burnout, burnout, mm-hmm. burnout, burnout, burnout. My team is burnt out. Mm-hmm. Yet, they don't have, have never seemingly thought about bringing somebody like you on board mm-hmm to do this, to help their people. Like they say to me, well, I've, you know, I've given them an extra day off. We delivered them each a pizza on Friday afternoon. Um, we sent them a bottle of wine and, and, and we had a cocktail hour from four to five on Friday. It's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the book, Start Talking Mental Health and Sales. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one of the, the toughest parts that sales teams have. It's like, how do you have consistent conversations around mental health and sales? What, like, where is the starting point? So I, I created the ebook um, to essentially provide 40 conversation starters that leaders and teams can work through on a daily basis to start having more conversations about this. But I think going back to your point about sort of the, the clients and some of the, the leaders that you've spoken to that are really you know, my team's burnt out. What do they do? And they're and they're de- they're defaulting to this to this strategy where here's some time off. Here's this extra wellness day that you should you should use. And really, the pitfalls in this is one, it's a reactive strategy. So it's like it's only being applied when teams are really burnt out. So yeah. 
it's not really going to resolve the problem. But the biggest issue with these wellness days, they do help. They help offload some stress. But the problem is, is there's two missing components. One, you're operating under the impression and the assumption that salespeople or your employees know how to rest and recover. They know how to recover from stress and use these different resources in their self-care activities and resources that the company provides to recover from stress in a healthy way. Healthy way as opposed to, you know, take the day off and spend the day on a patio having a few drinks or playing video games or doing all these things that might not necessarily help recover from stress. And two, the other thing that's often missing is the belief or the reason or that kind of internal purpose of someone wanting to rest and recover because they want Mm. to show up and perform their best. And Mm -hmm. specifically within sales, there's a deep disconnect between meaningful work and having a strong purpose in sales and everything that you're trying to do on a daily basis is you're, you don't feel emotionally connected to your work because everything is metrics driven. Everything is outcome driven. So even if you are given a day off, why, why should you use that time to recover so you can show up your best? And that's where having that meaningful work, deep understanding of your purpose, why you're showing up each day is a really key component to actually making these wellness days and these days off really effective because people should want to recover, but most don't or don't know how. They don't they don't want to or they don't know how. They're, they're running so hard that you give me 24 hours off and I'm lost mm-hmm. because I don't know what to do. I'm supposed to rest, but but what do I do? I have alcohol. That's not going to help me mm-hmm. ultimately. So uh, the way the way I always like to visualize it is like we can't be treating boundaries and self care like an aspirin, like taking it when we're we have a headache and we're already really hurt. When the way we should be like teams, leaders, everyone should be looking at things like self care and kind of managing their stress levels is treating it like a daily multivitamin that you take every day, making sure that you are building time in every single day to help your body rest and recover from the stress that it encounters throughout the day. Because when we don't do that, we move further and further into this situation where we're operating from distress and no longer using stress for advantage. Stress isn't inherently bad. Stress is, can be a good thing. Stress is used to help athletes, you know, build muscles, grow, get stronger. Stress is really helpful to helping us develop our brains and learn new skills. Like that's all because we're putting our bodies into stress and uncomfortable situations, forcing it to learn. Stress only becomes bad when we we don't know how to use it to our advantage and we're operating in distress and feeling fatigued and burnt out and have high levels of cortisol and adrenaline running through our bodies all the time. Like that's when it becomes problematic. And the majority of the workforce, the majority of people working in sales are operating in this distress zone because they're put in these situations where they can't rest and recover effectively because they're forced to hunt, 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 unstop, which the body was not built or evolved to do to operate in this way. So it's all having an impact on performance and mental health and our overall happiness and well-being. Wow. Am I right in this statistic, um, Jeff, that your research shows that more than 40% of people in sales struggle with their mental health? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you did a sort of a Google search before the pandemic, uh, most reputable mental health sources would state that in any given year, one in five people struggle with their mental health. That's the, or struggle from a mental illness. That's sort of the average numbers. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find any, any numbers specific to sales. So I went out and did my own survey and gathered responses from close to 300 salespeople and found that that number is more than two in five salespeople are struggling with their mental health. So 43% mm-hmm. 
Hmm. And now I've gone back to do that survey again, uh, just back in April of this year. And I partnered with um, an amazing mental health organization called Uncrushed and Richard Harris from the Harris Consulting Group. And we gathered a whopping, I think it was 790 responses from salespeople, which is huge. And we show that the problem is just getting worse. We're now at sitting at 58% of salespeople are struggling with their mental health. So almost three in five salespeople are making more mental mistakes and struggling with things like anxiety and burnout. So realistically, it's not surprising to hear sort of the leaders that you're speaking to, that they're hearing from their teams, that they're burnt out. They're like yeah. doing these, like they're struggling really, and they're in tough situations. So this is something that needs to 100% be a priority for, for organizations right now, because the intensity of change that we've gone through has just simply not been met by the same intensity of support that we, that we need. And I think kind of one of the blind spots that organizations are missing right now is if you think about the change we just went through, let's call it, you know, the pandemic, working from home, isolation. Yeah. We were doing navigating these situations, these difficult emotions, crying, anger, stress, like in the comfort of our own homes, surrounded by people that we love and care about. And if organizations are expecting their employees to come back to the office and start working with people that they have only met through Zoom and have no idea who their employees are or their, their colleagues are anymore, that change back is going to be extremely stressful. And you need to make sure that you're creating space for vulnerable conversations to take place because people are going to be angry and irritable and burnt out and fatigued. And now they're in a situation where they're surrounded by total strangers that they don't feel safe with. Like that's going to be a big problem if you're thinking about having people come back to an office, even if it's for two to three days a week. I never thought of it with that lens that the emotions that they're going through have been at home with people that quote unquote, care about them and are there to nurture them to whatever degree they're able to, how many people have been hired into organizations, as you say, and I don't know the statistic for this, but it would be a cool thing to look up, that have never met their other folks in the office because there was no office. So they know them by Zoom calls, but they don't really know them. Mm-hmm. And we uh, had the privilege of having a an author and an emergency room doctor named Dr. Daniel Kala on Breaking Brave. And he talked about what he believes is a huge wave that's about to hit the beach called PTSD post-COVID. Because when we can all let down a little bit, if we've got our vaccinations and we're feeling a little bit more in tune with being able to be out in the world, that then it hits. Mm -hmm. And so what you've just struck on is, incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. What I've, I think sort of how I've been talking about and relating to sort of the comment PTSD that 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 you were talking about just now is I think sales sabbaticals, sabbaticals in general are going to be like a huge, huge component uh, that organizations are not prepared for and going to be mm-hmm. a thing going forward. Um, just because the, 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 support it just it just hasn't been there for teams for individuals to offload this stress and yeah if you think about it like especially with social media right now if you're you know a top sales performer at an organization in your 20s you've been saving your money because you haven't been able to do anything over the last 18 months you haven't started a family yet as soon as some of these travel destinations open up like 
why not leave if you can kind of afford to do it? Like you're in high demand, especially in an environment like this. And yeah, I see situations potentially happening where things like hashtag sales sabbatical starts to trend on Instagram. And we all know how, how much FOMO travel pictures create for people. All of a sudden we have these different kind of pockets open up where salespeople are just like, I'm out. I need to kind of take a break, regain perspective and, 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 and figure out what's meaningful to me because it's been a, been a wild year that we've all had to navigate. Yeah. We've all had to, we've all had to rethink our entire life and coming back out of this, our priorities are going to be different because we've looked at things with different lenses, some out of have to, and some out of chosen to, but Oh my gosh, I'm so I'm I'm sure you're so right. I was just gonna say I think it's because there's been a lot of a lot of us kind of waiting for the new normal to come back. A lot of saying, when's the new normal coming back? And yeah, as a result, when you're in that kind of mindset and you're approaching each day saying, thinking about all of the things that you can't do. I can't travel, I can't see my friends, I can't do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. That's draining our willpower. Think about someone that's on it like trying to diet in the wrong way. They're going down the grocery store saying, I can't have that piece of food. I can't do that. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when that person then decides that willpower runs out and that person then decides to have a little treat, that was like an elastic band. It snaps back past the point of where it started. And I think that's what we're going to see with the sabbatical is a lot of people have been saying, I can't travel. I can't travel. I can't travel for so long that two-week vacations aren't going to cut it, and that snapback is going to go past that two-week piece to people needing a month, multiple months off, yeah. maybe six months. I've, when I've written and shared about this on my social networks and my website, I can't tell you how many responses I've gotten from salespeople and leaders already that have said, I've quit my, I quit my job six months ago. I'm already here. Or I can't wait till Costa Rica is available again because that's where I'm yeah. going. Like, there's a few organizations like Surf and Sales. They're looking at kind of having more of these destinations, that would be a good organization to check out if you are interested in sales sabbaticals. But yeah, it's it's really going to be a, an interesting time that employers are navigating and, and not sure what to do. But but now they have you. I hope now I can do my best to try and we'll, we'll see what happens. So Jeff, let's, uh, let's go back to a little bit of grew up in the West End. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, went to Kingsway College. Yeah. I remember when that school was started. I'm so old. You're so young. I think I was like the, like, I think very, probably like the third class in KCS. Oh, okay. So that's great. So it's like, yeah, very early days at KCS for sure. And then you went to Upper Canada College, UCC. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just went for, went for high school. So after, yeah, after grade eight, I went to UCC. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And after that, went to McGill. Mm Mm-hmm. After McGill, you went traveling with mm-hmm. two friends, right? Mm-hmm. And where in the world did you travel? Yes, yeah. So we went to, I also went with two friends and we went, started in LA and then LA to Beijing, Beijing to Hong Kong, then through Thailand a little bit, Laos, uh, and then Bali. And then our plan was to spend about nine months working in Australia. So we got done and working in, uh, in, in Melbourne. So it's a little bit of a time in Sydney. And then the plan was to spend the rest of the time in Melbourne because we'd heard that Melbourne was very similar to kind of like the vibe and the culture that uh, Montreal had. And we all went to yeah. Gale and really enjoyed Montreal. 
Um, so yeah, we got down to, to, to Melbourne. Uh, we, I ended up finding a job working at this company called Aussie Farmers Direct, selling Australian farm products, which was pretty hilarious over the phone. I got to stop you there. Aussie farm products. Yes. Well, like, so I have yet to travel to Australia, although my daughter has just become engaged to an Australian man who came from the Melbourne area. Um, what are Aussie farm products like sheep? No, it's just like supporting local farmers. Like they're Australians are super, super passionate about supporting locals and supporting their own. And Aussie farmers direct was essentially sort of back thing that what I guess it was 11, 12 years ago now, mm-hmm. it was like farm to door, really fresh home produce deliveries. So neat. Yeah, this is primarily being done over the phone with like, you know, people that had signed up and interested. It's like, here's what we're selling. Do you want to sign up for like a weekly meal box of all of this awesome fresh Aussie farmers products? So it's it's wild to think that they had three Canadian guys with it who were not speaking Australian. Yeah selling to Australians, but, uh, it, it worked. So yeah, it was, it was like an interesting job. It was, it was fine for, for, for where we were at, but yeah, the, my two friends, they stayed in Australia for the full nine months. I got to about like a month and a half there. And I was like, Melbourne, I, I wasn't loving it there. I just felt like it wasn't different enough. I think I kind of entered my travel experience thinking, I don't know what I want to do after McGill. So I'm going to go traveling. And in my, in my head, I'm like, I had this like dream, this fantasy of, you know, going to Australia and being like, here's where I'm going to live for the rest of my life. And when I got there, it was just like, yeah, it's like, it's okay here. And then, um, so I decided to come back and I was like, look, like I could spend another six and a half months here, or I could come back and start working on a career and figuring out the next stages of my life. And, and that's really what I did was just like. And so the Australian sales experience was your first sales job. So I did a tiny bit of sales at McGill where I was calling alumni and asking for donations and kind of just to make some extra cash when I was there. Ah. Uh, yeah. But in, did you have a quota in Australia about how how many boxes you needed? I think if I remember correctly, your job was to reignite some of these um, dormant accounts that had signed up and then maybe just gone to sleep and not really become active again with the uh, with the door deliveries. Yeah, yeah. So we were on like an auto dialer calling whatever it was, thousands of numbers every single day. And we were just there. And anytime someone picked up, we'd be trying to reintroduce them to the product and trying to get them to resubscribe to the service. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's a uh, did you feel dejected? Did you feel rejected? Was there any little inklings in your stomach at this point in sitting beside an auto dialer and having people hang up on you or tell you to go away or not answer their phone? Or did it start a little bit here or not yet? I think it was it was a fairly easy job. Again, I was with working with two of my best friends. Um, and there was so much other stuff outside of the job or on a day-to-day basis that whether it was trying any restaurant we hadn't been to or the beach or whatever. There was so much to keep the mind busy that if you had to sit there for six, seven hours a day, it didn't matter because we were still loving other aspects of our life. So it didn't matter. So you came back Mm -hmm. to Canada and started working for a world, a company called the World Trade Group. Now, the one piece of information I don't have, uh, Jeff, is what is that? What do they do? 
Yeah, so they were responsible responsible for putting on conferences, essentially. So okay. whether it was big pharma, supply chain, um, oil and gas, like my area that I was focused on was was oil and gas. And okay. when I started working there, they had just launched sort of a smaller division that was focused on putting together custom-tailored workshops for oil and gas executives. So this would require mm. calling C-level and C-level executives at sort of the biggest oil and gas companies in the world to participate and attend a small workshop where they could kind of share best practices with each other. But this, I would say, is sort of the, this is what I always talk about as kind of my first experience in sales, because this was very much a boiler room type of sales environment being measured on whether or not you can make $200 a day, cheap two and a half hours of talk time. If you weren't hit any of your metrics, you were you were let go pretty quickly. So it was... So metrics were being measured like minute by minute kind of thing. Will you make $200 a day? What, what yourself personally on a commission basis? Or what does that actually mean? No, 200, 200 dials a day. So you would, 200 have, to, dials you would a day. have to make like 200 dials and two and a half hours of talk time. So if people were not answering and let's say you only got an hour and a half and you made 200 dials, you would have to maybe potentially call 300 or 400 people one day if that meant getting to that two and a half hour mark, which is crazy. How how long did were you able to, to stick this out? How long were you there before you started to see and experience some panic attacks and anxiety, et cetera? Yeah, like it, it was, it was pretty quick. Like I would say it was probably within the first sort of two to three months. Like I came in and I was sort of one of the, I, I got lucky with a few deals and did really well initially. So I, mm-hmm. I did well as one of the top performers in, in the organization for a while. And then after that first little snippet, then I started to struggle with really bad anxiety, insomnia, panic attacks in the middle of the night. And it was after sort of the third panic attack that put me in the hospital when I was like, well, this is no good. I should probably do something about this. So I went to see my doctor. He prescribed me some anxiety medication, which I tried for two to three months. I really hated how it made me feel. I felt like I was disconnected and lost touch with my intuition and my emotions, yeah. things I was relying on to be a top performer. And yeah. going to therapy 10 years ago was still highly stigmatized. So it wasn't even something that I considered. And I really did enjoy working sales, even though it wasn't necessarily the best environment to be in. I enjoyed mm. the career growth, the learning, the type of money that you could make. And that's when I started to look for different ways to take care of my mental health, learn about kind of the resilience, the mental health, kind of how does the brain react under stress and start learning different things that I could be doing on a daily basis to start navigating these stressful situations in a mentally healthy way. But as I was coming out of that, it's kind of going back to the sales culture at an organization back then. Like when I hadn't been performing for call it like three, four months, I was put on a performance improvement program given a target that no one in company history had ever hit. And they were just like, hit this target or you're, you're out the door. So on top of all of the kind of internal struggles that I was going through, it was then this other thing that kind of was thrown at me. And I just, at that time I was like, you know, I'm a fairly competitive person. And I was like, this is not how I'm going to go, go out or be remembered here. And I just went out and smashed the target. They gave me another one, hit that one again. I went on to be one of the top rep within in the organization for about three, four months. They flew me to London because they were like, this is, who is this guy now? He's doing all this great stuff. And 
the second I could get out of there, right after I came back from London, I was like, quitting, I'm out of here. Like, Goodbye. You showed your true colors when I was at my worst. You weren't there to support me. And I see that kind of same situation happen all the time within sales where sales teams result to performance improvement programs. And it's one of the harshest things that you can do to someone. <laughs> it's like kicking somebody when they're down. I mean, you're having a tough time. So let's give you a sales target that nobody in the history of the company has ever, ever achieved before. What are they thinking, Jeff? They're thinking that you're not motivated enough or like, how the hell is that helpful? This is a common practice still today and probably like I don't know, 80 to 90% of sales organizations where the default is to assume that the person is not motivated or they're just a bad, I don't know, what's what's the right, bad carrot or the bad, like a, the bad apple in the bunch where they're apple. in a slump or whatever. They need to be kicked out of the slump. Totally. And that's where a lot of leaders misperceive it being a performance issue when it's actually in the majority of the time, it's someone that's struggling with their not, with their mental health. They're struggling from burnout. They're struggling from anxiety. If we go back to those numbers that we talked about earlier, 58% of salespeople are struggling, especially right now. And if you think about that, they're already in a state of feeling defeated, feeling mm. a failure, anxiety's through the roof, stress hormones are through the roof. All of these things are happening. And as a result, when that stressful brain is hyperactive like that, you're not going to be performing at a high level. To then on top of that, compound that with a performance improvement program, which is essentially showing to that person, whether they're aware of it or not, that they are on the outside of a tribe. So for a very long time, our, our yeah. human brain has evolved over thousands of years. And one of the most threatening, dangerous situations that the brain can recognize is when they're pushed to the exterior of a group and at the fear of being excommunicated from it. Yeah. So in a situation where a rep is already stressful and underperforming, that is the worst strategy that you can do by pushing them further and inflicting that stress response even further by making them feel like they're going to be fired or let go. And it's just going to shut down performance even more. So it's just so archaic, archaic and broken and it's still being used today. And that's why a lot of the stuff I talk about is really trying to change some of these outdated norms that I don't know where they came from. They're definitely not rooted in how people are meant to perform or be motivated, but they're just total garbage and total crap. <laughs> well, and 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 the fact that they even dare to call it, I'm going to put you on a performance improvement program, which mm -hmm. sounds sort of sunshine and light by the moniker, but yet I have this visual of you having a post-it note on your head and all your other salespeople looking at him like, oh, he's on probation, essentially, mm -hmm. or he's sitting outside the principal's office, or that is horrible. Mm -hmm. But again, that's an easy thing for a leader who, one, may not necessarily have the training, so they may not know what declining mental health looks like, what are sort of the signs yeah. to look out for. Yeah, And two, if they do know that this is sort of happening, but that conversation makes them uncomfortable, it's way easier for them to an, avoid an uncomfortable situation and say, here is a performance improvement program. Like, I've, I've done my job. If you don't hit it, you're done. As opposed to doing the more challenging thing, which is sit down and say, hey, like, why aren't you performing right now? Like, what's actually mm -hmm. going on? And starting with the story of saying, like, if I, I was in a sales leadership position and I saw a rep underperforming now, my first step would be like, 
hey, here's my story. Here's when I, like, I've noticed that you haven't been performing over the last sort of two or three months. That's totally okay. Like when in the past, when I've been there, like I've had panic attacks, I've had anxiety, I've had really bad insomnia. I was drinking heavily. I was playing loads of video games as a way to cope. Like none of mm-hmm. that was helping me perform. And I'm not, I don't know if that's what you're going through right now or, or you're feeling something similar or going through a different experience, but just know if you want to open up and talk about this stuff, like I'm here. Cause it's like, I've been there and I get it. And I'm here to try to help and kind of work through this with you. And very few managers just in general would, would, would take that approach. Yeah. Have you seen similar situations in, in your work with sort of how leaders have addressed challenging conversations? Yes. They just don't want to go there. There's this impression and it's archaic of, I have to be impenetrable. I have to be in my ivory tower and I have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And everybody else has to perceive me that way. And they're afraid mm-hmm. of having the brave conversation. And there's absolutely no way they got to where they are without having some tough stuff go on for them. Mm-hmm. But standing up and talking about it is something that they're afraid of because they're somehow ingrained in their mind that they have to be perfect. I'm a leader. I'm the national sales manager. I cannot show anything that looks like a failure or a misstep in my personal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's why I really like the way uh, Bernie Brown approaches a lot of these conversations. Yeah. And I think her sort of definition of being vulnerable is it's like a willingness to climb into the hole and sit there and sort of feel what that person is feeling. And that takes a lot of courage to do that. And it takes a lot of courage to open up, but that's really how we can kind of resolve some of these, these performance issues, these things, these emotions and these stressors that we're facing. And I really like, I think, again, I think it was her, but she said the sort of questions that you can ask when you're in these situations is sharing your story and then say like, Hey, what, what do you need right now? Do you need me to just sit here and listen? Or do you want me to provide advice? Because oftentimes it's usually they just want someone to sit there and listen and encourage them to and empower them to find their own way out. But a lot of business leaders are so caught up in resolving performance as quickly as possible. Their default is to jump into problem solving mode and say, here's here's what you can do to get out of this. Like you 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 just got rejected on this call start doing this, 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 and this, like, let's right. go, let's go. we got metrics to hit. And there's, there's no space to kind of pause and just kind of really experience those emotions that we're facing um, and let those waves of emotions pass. And it's not a light switch. No. And I think that traditional leaders, leaders who still do the performance improvement programs, PIPs, I guess they're, they're Pips, called. Yeah. Um, they think it's a light switch. Okay. So I gave you a new goal. So tomorrow everything's going to be better. And and it is so not like, like that. It's becomes really aligned with the definition of insanity. You keep on doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result from your salesperson or people. It ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, again, why I think this is the next sort of 10 years of sales is is really going to be focused on the way I kind of talk about it is like embracing the corporate athlete mentality and treating salespeople more like athletes and equipping them yeah. with the pads and the helmets they need to play a contact sport. Because when I started working at World Trade Group, I guess that was almost, I guess, 10 years ago now or before or longer, 
there was no sales technology. I was calling off a stack of paper leads that was this tall, probably like 400 sheets of paper, and it's going bang, 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 bang. CRM's Salesforce was brand new. The sales enablement industry was in its infancy. Technology just wasn't part of sales. And the last 10 years has really been this rapid evolution of technology entering the workforce that is helping salespeople sell faster and Mm. work harder than ever before. And a lot of companies could make up gaps in performance by buying a new innovative technology that would make up for that gap in performance. So that wasn't really necessary to think about the, the person and you could build these kind of predictable sales machines. But now we're entering a situation where every single one of your competitors, we built these, what I call Ferraris, these Ferraris of sales enablement technologies. They're so mm-hmm. fast. You can go really quickly. Everyone has a Ferrari. It's no longer who has the biggest budget. We all have access to the same tech. Mm-hmm. And now what the next, the future is going to be about is what about the driver? If you're putting a driver behind that Ferrari every single day, who's not sleeping, who's anxious, who's burnt out, who's depressed, they're going to be making way more mental mistakes than someone that's maximizing the, the, the mental part of the game and maximizing their overall health and well-being. So how do we really start taking care of that driver who knows how to go at top speeds, really high speeds, using stress to their advantage to perform at a high level on a consistent basis, as opposed to this driver's burnt out, get out of here, new driver, new driver, new driver. Right. And I love this analogy. My husband happens to be a a huge F1 fan. So I've learned over the years all about, well, not all about, but I'm scratching the surface of understanding F1, but the idea of the car, the machine being the tech But there's a human being behind the wheel. And there is where, no matter how great your tech is, if the human being isn't well, isn't working at their peak performance because their mental health and physical health is being looked after, then it doesn't matter how great your car is. Yeah, it just won't matter. And it's like a lot of that kind of perspective changing that I'm sort of talking about because it took me a while to get to this idea of, you know, a corporate sales athlete or any employee in general, just being a corporate athlete it sort of resonated. I think a lot of salespeople are competitive. They're connected with the sports world and they like, yeah. and they're like, yeah, I, totally does. That, that makes sense. I get that now. So, um, and then Jeff in the, in the, in the big world of my research, um, we do have something else in common. Ooh. The same summer of 2018, okay. we were both diagnosed with cancer. Wow. How, uh, yeah. how are you feeling today? I'm, a hundred percent. And, and mine was breast cancer and they caught it early and princess Margaret, God bless them. But there is an emotional roller coaster. And so what I was reading about you Mm -hmm. was that the, the learning, the techniques, the coping strategies that you were becoming so hand in hand with for your business, for sales and for what you've started here with the sales health Alliance helped you through your cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Like it's, I'm I'm grateful that it happened, the opportunity, honestly, like, I think it's kind of, it was one of those, um, there's like a a word that's used in a lot of kind of psychology books. It's called like post-traumatic growth. It's like people experiencing these traumatic situations, but they actually act as this like big source of fuel to totally change who they are and their beliefs, their mindsets towards the world. And, for me, that was kind of a, a really good period of reflection where 
lot of the strategies I started, I was using to take care of mental health and sales and actually started to execute on during this next stressful period of my life. And so this whole idea around sort of mental health and sales really started to take shape, but good for you. I think like it really shook me out of that. The idea that I think a lot of us operate under where it's like, there's always more time. Like when Mm -hmm. I was, when Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with testicular cancer, I was 30 years old hadn't heard a soul close to me that has had it, even though it's really common for sort of around that kind of 30 age mark. And then it jumps back up after 60, which I had no idea about. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. So it's like, it really shook me out of this mindset where it's like, look, I'm in the healthiest shape of my life. Like, how is this happening now to realize that like, look, like that company you wanted to start these ideas that we all have, like something you can wake up one day and it can change like that. And Thankfully, I also caught it early, so it was a fairly quick recovery process. Obviously, not pleasant with surgery and everything like that, but it thank really, God, I'm glad you're well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really did just kind of wake me up to that idea that there isn't always more time, and to start kind of living each day and maximizing and trying to leave this world in a better place than when when I got here. And it's sort of kind of the mindset that I've tried to embrace and, and live by every day. And I love what you've just said, Jeff, in post traumatic growth. Am I quoting that correctly? Mm-hmm. Because I have, I found some, some in my digging about Jeff, like, <laughs> you said the following four words, I loved my anxiety. Yeah. Can you tell the folks listening? Why did you say I loved my anxiety? Yeah. Like it's, so anxiety is used as your self-protection system. So there's two systems that are constantly dueling throughout the day. So we have this system in ourselves, more of like a mattering instinct. So regardless of what we're doing, we want to get to the end of our lives and say, we mattered and we were here and we lived a meaningful life and we made a difference. And that system Mm -hmm. is consistently battling with the self-protection system, which is responsible Mm -hmm. for things like anxiety, self-doubt, fear, And these two are constantly fighting for control throughout the day. You have your self-protection system that really likes comfort. So it wants to keep you in your comfort zone. And as when anytime you're doing something uncomfortable, whether it's making a speech, whether like today, hopping on a podcast, I felt my anxiety (laughs) flare up a little bit before because (laughs) I- Mine too. I'm nervous before every single one. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have this kind of little thing that kind of pops up to try to keep you in your comfort zone and say Mm. no to things. And they really keep you from stepping outside your comfort zone, embracing and seeking out discomfort so you can fulfill that mattering instinct and live a very meaningful life. And it was like a really interesting mindset shift. I think it was a book called The Wisdom of Anxiety by Cheryl Paul that kind of really helped me kind of reshape and change my mindset towards it, where it's like, look, your anxiety is actually really helpful. It's like a meaningful life detector. So as soon as you feel that bit of anxiety pop up, it's actually a sign to yourself to say, hey, I've found something really important, something really meaningful that you should be doing and to go through it. So it's kind of like, acknowledging when you when that anxiety comes up sitting there and say hey i i see you i hear you that you're anxious and this is a little scary but this is actually going to lead to some really good growth if we do it and sort of changing my mindset towards anxiety and looking at it more as a friend as opposed to something that i should be fighting against how do i work with it on a daily basis to to fuel more growth and, and really seek out discomfort 
And I, and I love that you described it as a spidey sense. Like, where does it happen for you? Is it, is it in your stomach? Is it in your, like, do you actually feel it in your body? I imagine the answer to that is yes, because I'll give you mine. If, if you give me yours, how do you f- experience anxiety or the, the bubbling up of that? Yeah. So the big one for me is like, I get this really weird pain in the upright side of my stomach and I've had it checked by multiple doctors and it's purely related to stress and anxiety. Like there's no kind of underlying health issue. Mm. Sometimes I have like sweating in the middle of the night if it's before a presentation uh, in the morning. I know, super pleasant. Um, And other than that, it's kind of like changes to breathing. Breathing is like the big one that I can really pick up on where I feel myself getting much shorter breaths. So there's different kind of like breathing strategies you can do to reset your breathing in situations like that, which have been really helpful. But those are kind of the main physical symptoms that I feel. What what about yourself? I get um, this, it's almost like a sinus headache, but Mm. it's this pain that goes across your nose and a bridge. Mm -hmm. And it's always just right there, always just right there. And given my age and how I was raised, Nobody ever paid attention to these kinds of things. They dismiss them. So like you, I've had to learn how to work with it. What are some things? So let's say there's people listening to Breaking Brave today and loving the conversation we're having, Jeff. So what I was told by a therapist was the first thing to do is be aware of how you're experiencing it. So you're at least, okay, I know when I get that thing across my nose or you know when your breathing starts to get shallow, that something's going on for you. But then what? Like, what do you personally suggest that people might be able to do? Not not that you're, you know, one size fits all for every single person, Jeff, but it might be nice just to think about some strategies here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so someone that I would highly recommend everyone check out, uh, he's got a really amazing podcast, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He is, okay. has a podcast called The Huberman Lab. Okay. And he's really on this like really amazing mission of wanting to equip everyone in the general general society and public with strategies rooted in neuroscience to help them manage their stress levels effectively. And he partnered up with all sorts of different other researchers in different universities and schools. And his what his lab found was the most effective way to shut off the stress response is to do what's called, what he describes as the physiological sigh. So this is something that we naturally do at night when we're mm. stressed, when we're crying, we sigh in this in a specific way. And he's and he recommends this breathing pattern as it is and what he's found is the quickest way to shut off the stress response. And the way you do it is you take a slightly longer inhale followed by a shorter inhale and then a really long exhale. And it goes something like this. It goes. And by doing that, the way that the reason why that strategy really works effectively is when we're getting anxious a lot because our breathing pattern is, is messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what starts to happen is that there's a buildup of CO2 in our body that starts to make our body feel like we're becoming stressed, that we're in a stretch, stressful situation because this buildup of CO2 is taking place. So the, wow. so the reason why the double inhale works is because the second inhale inflates the parts of the lungs that have collapsed as a result of feeling stressed and the extra, the really long exhale helps offload and forcefully removes a lot of the CO2 from your body. And because your lungs are extra inflated, it helps improve that exchange of CO2 leaving your body at the same time. So that's one strategy that you can use, which has been 
I use it all the time. It's super, super effective. Um, it's a cleanse. You're detoxifying your your system. Mm-hmm. I, there's so many people in the world, though, Jeff, that are naysayers about breathing. I think maybe for me, it was just try it. And in my case, obviously in yours, works like a charm. Well, if, if anyone has any kind of pushback or any kind of is, is unsure about what, mm-hmm. how, why breathing is effective, the best way you want to think about it is if... When, when you're getting stressed, what starts to get engaged is your autonomic nervous system. So this is your stress response. So a lot of people relate to that stress response as fight or flight system. So a lot yeah. of changes start to take place in your body. Adrenaline and cortisol start to get released. Your, um, your saliva glands start to dry up because you're, you have, that's why you get dry mouth before you're about to make a presentation. Your vision really starts to narrow. Your breathing quickens up because all of these adjustments are taking place because it was a system designed help you fight off a bear or run away from a threatening situation in the past right now the other side of that system is called the parasympathetic nervous system or the rest and digest system and that will do things that will help you rest and digest digest foods it lowers your cortisol and adrenaline levels your breathing is slower it's more relaxed your vision is not zoned in it's Mm -hmm. it's it's wider and the autonomic nervous system for a very long time up until recently was thought to be automatic. And it was thought that we can't control these things. And as a result, we're at the kind of mercy of our environment and the stressors that we face. And that really couldn't be farther from the truth. And what they're finding is, if you think about all of the the, the way the system works, the one thing that we can, we are fully in, in, in our control is our breathing and our diaphragm. Yeah. So our breathing and our diaphragm is really this human built gear shift between that we can use to gear shift up and gear shift down depending on the situation that we're in. We're in these threatening situations and we're in these stressful situations and we feel that fight or flight system start to engage. We can do things like the physiological side. We can slow our breathing down. We can do box breathing. We can do all of these things to gear shift down and engage that other side, the parasympathetic nervous system that will help us rest and digest. If we're unmotivated and we're feeling really sluggish, we can do things like take a cold shower or we can do something called the Wim Hof breathing method, which is very short, quick, powerful inhales to engage that fight or flight system to move us into a situation where we're in that sweet spot between we're not going too fast, and we're not going too slow. We're in the middle where we're in a situation that we can actually perform. So breathing is just like, it's incredible. Anyone that has, has any kind of pushback or any doesn't believe in, I highly recommend picking up the book Breath by James Nestor. This guy went deep. If you think he went deep on sort of my biography and my background, he went... (laughs) This guy takes it to a whole new level. Okay, He went deep into thousands upon thousands of years of how humans have, how they've breathed for the last who knows how long, and Mm. has pulled out all of the best breathing techniques and things that you can be doing on a daily basis and how you can breathe effectively to perform your best on a regular basis. I have learned so much. So, so Jeff, how's business for you in the Sales Health Alliance business right now? Have you become so busy because people are starting to realize, oh my gosh, my teams are getting burnt out? Or people don't understand that sending a pizza doesn't work? Yeah, so it was. it's been really interesting so back when COVID kicked off, I felt like I was 
throwing water at the wall. Nothing was sticking. Yeah. There was zero traction. And I'd been pushing and kind of working on sales health lines for about a year and a half up until that point. So I was like, wow, like if organizations aren't going to have this conversation now, like when are they ever going to have this conversation around mental health and sales? And back in August of last year, I was probably two, three, four weeks away from, you know, just giving up and saying, well, I guess this isn't going to happen and not going to take place. But I think what happened was during the first wave, organizations sort of went into self-protection mode and, yeah. and turned everything off and said, let's just, if this is a three-month thing, we're just going to shut, cut expenses and we'll kind of put our head down and, and go with it. Wait it out. Yeah. But at that time when I was like, well, I'll give it another three to four weeks to see what happens because I, I thought a second wave was going to be coming, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And around that time, what did start to happen was the second wave started to come and it became clear that COVID wasn't going to be a three-month thing. It was more of like a year and a half, multi-year thing. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of organizations started to realize that you know a lot of these issues around burnout and mental health that they were trying to avoid they had to address them going, especially going into the winter months. So going into, I would say, November of last year, things have started to get quite busy, which has been a welcome change. I'm still trying to kind of adjust to the change of pace and keep up with things. But yeah, over the last six to eight months, I've started to work with some of the biggest companies and sales teams in the world, which is just so humbling. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share my story and share some of the stuff I've learned. I'm I'm thrilled. It's really exciting to see that now companies are really starting to embrace this conversation more and starting to realize that we've really all rallied around this this external threat of COVID and we see the impact it's having on mental health. It's too hard to just ignore now. And companies are really starting to see, well, one, addressing it actually does help improve performance, but two, like mental health is going to be something we struggle with long after the pandemic is over. So we have Mm. to start kind of embracing these conversations going forward. It was there before the pandemic. It's going to be there times 10 Mm -hmm. after the pandemic. So absolutely. And for you personally, I'm glad to hear that, Jeff. There was a line in the sand, but then things changed. And so I'm so thrilled you're still here in your business. I was so close. I just, I was, I, 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 like to think of myself as someone that doesn't quit and like doesn't yeah. give up and is very resilient when it comes to pushing through things. And that was, like I said, the, the talk, the, the clock was ticking and I was getting, getting very close and um, yeah, I'm just grateful that it didn't go that route and things changed and sort of the universe threw me a lifeline to say, Hey, like keep doing what you're doing. Like, I think there's, there's space for you here. So. Oh, there definitely is. And aren't we all thrilled beyond thrilled that you stuck it out because <laughs> I I mean I'm sitting here thinking okay this organize all these organizations that I've gone in and done workshops with or have done keynotes for for con- sales conferences it's usually sales conferences so it's sales people I'm like I could offload and direct so much business to you so you better get ready <laughs> I, that'd be amazing I'd be <laughs> happy I'd be really excited to kind of keep exploring this so no I appreciate that you used to, when you first started your business though, Jeff, I think you did things live, sessions in, in in facilitated sessions and worked with groups live. So for you personally then with the business, how has it been to be making the transition to not be able to do your live work anymore, but everything has to go on online? 
I think it's still really weird not getting the kind of the physical cues from sort of an audience yeah. to sit and you're more kind of just blankly looking into a camera a screen, or a screen yeah. and you're just yeah. like hope for the best. So I guess one of the bit one of the been one of the biggest challenges is missing the immediate feedback from clients around sort of how it's resonating as opposed to seeing the smiles or the mm-hmm. hands go up and things like that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I've actually really enjoyed the virtual environment. Like I think it's um I, I do believe that, you know, work from home provides a ton of benefits and flexibility. And uh, I, I do see this as sort of a staple going forward. And yeah, I, I enjoy it. So like I'm still delivering kind of five week programs to clients right now, uh, all around kind of resilience and mental health. And the way I've kind of structured it is like a one hour kickoff session followed by shorter 30 minute sessions afterwards to help build the habit of talking about mental health and resilience on an ongoing basis and not to overload in content dump. Like I think that's been a, a model that's worked well for me to kind of give snippets each week or actual things people can do as opposed to try to like dump it all into a two or three hour workshop. You can totally get your head around just, just one thing. Yeah. Just today, just one thing. So if if it's too much, I mean, people are already feeling overwhelmed. So I so agree with that approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's been interesting because that's the toughest part I had to find is like, how do you fit this conversation into an organization that's like so focused on selling and performance that they don't want to take time away from the calls and the emails, but snapping on these kind of weekly sessions is easier to do from like a sales standpoint. And just two days ago, I just finished relaunching my online course as well. So Congratulations. How yeah. do people find you? Let's do that. What what do they do? How do they find you? Yeah, so just, you can find me at saleshealthalliance.com. It's uh, my whole belief around sort of the business was to be a resource first and a business second. So there's about nice. close to 100 pieces of content, articles, podcasts, ebooks on there that people can use to start actioning this conversation. And there's also like the online program that they can access through there under the training section. And then if there's a sales leader listening that's saying, hey, this sounds interesting. Like, how do I kind of work with this guy? You can connect with me on LinkedIn or send me an email, jeff at saleshealthlines.com. And yeah, I'd love to kind of explore the conversation with, with others and, and, and continue to really start, like I said, equipping sales teams and salespeople with the tools they need to navigate stressors in a mentally healthy way. What a wonderful calling. I also was thinking about the fact that if an organization started with you online and that we're able to start meeting maybe in person, even in small groups, that essentially maybe the behavior you've started to put in place online, and then when you finally get the opportunity of being with these organizations live, mm-hmm. wow, doesn't that just feel like the icing on the <laughs> cake? Like you now have the physical cues. You now have the ability to appreciate the smiles and the body language and the things that go with it. Mm -hmm. It's going to like 10 times the effect because it's a human experience now. Yeah, well, I I, I really do think that someone, I call it the sales enablement of well-being, someone that is dedicated to performance and well-being for salespeople and employees in general needs to be in-house like 100%, whether that's Mm. like a therapist or someone like myself who knows some of the neuroscience and kind of the stressors and things like that. Like there needs to be someone in a permanent role that's helping to coach and support salespeople every single day. I'm doing my best with kind of like the external stuff that I'm doing and kind of popping in for these, these, these sessions or these programs. But 
I do think that we're in a situation, especially right now, given the rate at which mental health has started to decline, yeah, that there needs to be a permanent person in-house that's working on this stuff every single day. Even if it's just meeting with salespeople or meeting with employees on a regular basis to coach them through some of these stressors. Absolutely. And one of the things that I, I read as I was um, looking you up in the world, Jeff, was the concept of comparing sales to traditional sales to video games. So the idea that if you're playing a video game and you lose, you know why, you're told why, there's immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're failing in sales, sometimes, oftentimes, you have to wait for your quarterly review, your 360, your set date with your sales manager or whoever that is. And during the time from starting to fail and maybe it coming apart to that actual date of review, if you want to call it that, there's all these bad voices and negative feelings that start to creep in and consume you. And then it just leads to a worsening situation. Yeah. Like it's, I think sort of building off of that comment and using the video game example, it's the reason why I love video games is they, at least for me personally, they taught me how I feel like to fail in the right way. They provide really safe environments where you can fail multiple times. And as a result, through that failing, losing to that boss or missing that jump over and over again, when you aren't afraid to fail because you know you're going to respawn or you're going to have another life to start again, you have this opportunity to learn how do you get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better and progress and eventually achieve that goal. The thing that shuts down that learning, that ability to learn is fear of failure. And and if you're in an environment where there's things like pips being used, if there's things like, you know, toxic environments or you're Mm. working for a manager or boss who's using fear to manage, it's impossible to learn. So that's why it becomes a situation where it's really hard to learn and fall forward because that stress response is kicked into high gear that we talked about. Yeah. And it's really important to memorize and learn new skills that you need to thrive and grow. And having a squared looping back as to what brought that in my mind was having somebody on site, having somebody that you could go and talk to. Like I had a really terrible day and I thought I was going to close this sale, whatever, whatever. And if there was somebody sitting there in your office that you could download this to, talk this through, or, or a group session with other salespeople that they could even go to, then you don't have the weeks and months of that toxic stuff starting to build up in you and the response that you you end up having physically and emotionally and mentally. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that building a supportive environment, why it's so important to have these mental health conversations on a regular basis to normalize it, to equip people with what they need to navigate these kind of micro changes and what they're thinking, feeling, and, and doing on a daily basis. So there's so much work to be to be done in this space. And the phrase I love, I think it was from Rich Roll. I think he has a podcast, Rich Roll. I just heard about him the other day from an old client and I had never heard about him. So Rich Roll, is it W? Is it R-O-L-E? Uh, R-O-L-L, I think. Okay, I'm not, fantastic. I'm not, again, another good podcast. but he, he was raving about it. So what's the podcast with Rich Roll all about? So he has his own one. Again, it's all about sort of performance. He brings in, he brought in Dr. Andrew Huberman. He brought in another guy, Dr. Michael Gervais. He's all about sort of performance and maximizing the human 
body's ability to perform at high levels. I think he was in prior, he was an ultra endurance type runner guy. Mm. So he was big in it and something, his mantra that he lives by is, is mood follows behavior. So you can't really, when you're in a bad mood, you can't think your way into a different mood. Like it's just, it's futile. So his kind of golden rule is mood follows behavior. So if you want to change your mood, you need to change your behavior. Even if it's a tiny, small behavior, it's like taking that step in the right direction is a critical part to starting that upward spiral as opposed to continuing Mm -hmm. down a path of a downward spiral. Last thing before we we wrap up. Mm -hmm. And thank you for giving me so much of your time. Yeah, of course. The idea that emotion is infectious and the idea that a salesperson who's feeling less than great about themselves and is um, struggling with their own mental health is going to exude that to other people in the sales force or to the customers. So the concept that the customer experience with that brand, with that organization, with whatever it is, is in jeopardy because of the salesperson trying their best to mask this, but that's not really working. So the spiral downward is, you know, continuing and that the general brand reflection and the customer experience is affected negatively as well. Yeah. And I think part of that is it's when that anxiety is really, or that stress is really starting to take over and take shape. Mm -hmm. What starts to happen is it becomes all about you. Like you have like this camera sort of zooming in on your face, showing your imperfections. I'm going to fail. Mm. Cold calling doesn't work. My product sucks. Everything becomes about you. And as a result, if you're leading with that belief and that mindset, the buyers feel that. The buyers are aware that you're not in it for them. So one of the best things you can do just in general is really adopt an altruistic mindset or it's also been called like a servant mindset where you're in this situation where every single interaction you're doing your part to try and serve and make the world a better place for the person that you're working with how do you create the best experience for your customers and if you are going into your calls your demos or your meetings with clients and your perspective and your mindset is purely focused on all of your attention is focused on creating the best experience for them it's very hard for your anxiety to get worked up and get get worried about things because technically you aren't in the picture because the picture is on someone else. Yeah. So that's like a really good way to help with that kind of those, those situations. It's like taking that servant mindset and and really helping to just better the lives of people around you genuinely wanting to help and care Mm -hmm. and, and, and improve the the lives of others. It's fantastic. So as a wrap up here, Jeff, what message would you like to leave with our listeners? And I say that as if people take one thing away from this, I guess that's my question. What would you what what do you want them to take away from this conversation today? Yeah, you're you're putting me on the spot here, but first thing, the, <laughs> didn't didn't prime the, you for this one. The, the first thing that I think comes to mind is uh, there's this really great YouTube channel that I've been following for the last two years. It's called the Yes Theory, and their whole mantra is around seeking discomfort. And it's something that I've really embraced and and tried to work into my daily life. And going back to that anxiety piece, it's like seeking discomfort on a regular basis. And yeah, do if, if I have one message, it's like, try to find as many things as possible on a regular basis. That's 
putting you in a comfort in an uncomfortable situation because it's really through that discomfort that you learn to grow, learn new skills, really start to fill that mattering instinct bucket that you're that, that that's usually not being filled on a daily basis. So yeah, do things that make you uncomfortable. Try learn a new hobby, you know, call that person that was, you know, you were afraid to call, ask to crush it. Do these things that are scaring you because again, that's just your anxiety letting you know that you're on the edge of your comfort zone and it's trying to say go back and take the safe road and it's very hard to live a meaningful life if you're not putting yourself in these uncomfortable situations thank you and i'm i'm just sitting with that right now and starting tomorrow i'm going to start doing that and thank you so thank you jeff risley for joining us today such great advice and so much information i have personally learned so thank you so much for joining us. And and I hope you'll come back because you know what? I, after we can get back and people can actually get in an elevator if they so choose and go up to an office tower, I'd love to have you come back and talk to us about how's that all going now? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity and happy to, to keep the conversation going in the future. And yeah, hopefully things start to change over the next couple of weeks, especially for for the two of us in, in Canada and Ontario, hopefully things will start to, to open up. But yeah, again, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation and and hopefully one or two people will take one or a few things away that will help them get 1% better. Absolutely. Thank you again, Jeff, for joining us. It was just a delight to have you on the show. Of course. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.